Chapter Ten of The Windy Hill by Cornelia Meggs. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Peter Eastman. A Man of Straw. The shower had lifted and was moving away down the valley, a gray mist of rain with a slowly following flood of sunshine. Oliver got up and said without enthusiasm, "We must go now. We have an errand we must do." Come along, Janet. She rose to go with him, but looked back wistfully several times as she went, with lagging feet, down the hill. She had wished that the story might last forever, so that she need not face Anthony Crawford at the end of it. They said nothing to each other as they climbed into the car, and threaded the twisting lanes and byroads that would take them to the house they sought. Oliver was rehearsing within himself what he should say when they presented the picture. My sister carried this away by mistake. We thought that we should return it to you as soon as possible. And then he will say something sharp and unkind, and I won't know what to answer, he reflected drearily. I will want to say that I am sure it isn't his anyway, and that Janet did well to take it, even by accident. But what is the use of stirring up more trouble? Well, I can only explain and then get away as quickly as we can. It is probable that Janet, who sat by him in low-spirited silence, was really suffering less than he. Oliver had undertaken the responsibility of returning the picture, and Oliver was a dependable boy, who could manage it far better than she could. She thought little of what was to be said or done, and was only anxious to have the affair over. They left the car in the lane, and walked together toward the sagging gate. A man was just coming through it, who proved, as they came near, to be John Massey. His good-natured, friendly face was pale under its sunburn, and drawn into unfamiliar lines of anger and despair. "'Mr. Payton sent me the money to settle up my rent,' he told them, "'and I came here to pay it and arrange about leaving. Crawford wants me to stay until the first of the month, but I am going to-day.' He has never stocked the farm with the tools and machinery a landlord is supposed to furnish, so I've bought them myself, what I could, and now he says they are his. He wants to know how I can prove that I paid for them, when everyone knows that it was his place to do it. He laughed at me when I said it would ruin me entirely. He said one man's gain was always from another man's loss. I vow there is the spirit of a devil in him. He looked back at the house among the trees, clenching his big hands and muttering to himself in helpless fury. He just stood there grinning, even guessing my thoughts, for he said, You could knock me down, I know, but it would be no satisfaction to you, for I would get back at you through the law. It would cost you more than it is worth, John Massey. It was what I knew was true myself, so I kept my hands off him and came away. Janet and Oliver stood looking at him miserably, knowing that there was nothing to be done. "'Get into the car and wait for us,' Oliver directed at last. "'We will take you home when we have finished here. We won't stay long.' "'You won't want to,' observed John Massey bitterly. "'He is in a famous bad temper.' They went through the gate, with Janet's steps lagging more than ever. There was something almost uncanny 
about a man who could cause such misery to other people, and yet go unscathed himself. They saw him almost immediately as they came up the path. He had been cutting down some weeds in the neglected field, and was standing in the middle of it, close beside the scarecrow. He did not move, but waited for them to come close, evidently meditating what he could say that would hurt and anger them the most. He began to speak the moment they came near, giving Oliver no opening for what he had meant to say. "'So Jasper Payton, having sent one of you to steal my picture, has lost courage and sent two of you to bring it back. Very clever, very clever of him indeed.' "'He knew nothing about it,' Janet was beginning passionately, when Oliver silenced her by a touch on her shoulder. "'He knows that,' he reminded her calmly. "'He is only trying to make you angry.' He caught a look of smoldering fury in Anthony Crawford's eye, and a note of surprised irritation in his voice. "'Well,' the man snapped, "'am I to have my property or not?' "'You are to have it. We will not keep anything that you even claim as yours,' returned Oliver. He felt hot rage surging up within him, yet he strove to keep it down. He had realized of a sudden that this man who could hurt his cousin Jasper so deeply, who could ruin John Massey, could harm neither him nor Janet in the least. Oliver had felt real dread as he came through the gate. He had been haunted by the vague terror of what Anthony Crawford might be able to do. But he looked upon him now with disillusioned eyes, knowing him for nothing but a small-minded, selfish, spiteful man whose power over them was nothing at all. If I can only keep as calm as he can, he will never get the better of me, the boy thought desperately, as he struggled with his own rising tide of anger. Perhaps you would be glad to have me establish my real rights, said Crawford. You would like to have it brought up in court, perhaps, how your sister was found going through my possessions, and how she happened quite by chance, of course to select the most portable and valuable article in my house and carry it away with her. She would like, I am sure, to have public opportunity to make all that quite plain. Oliver heard Janet's gasp of panic-stricken horror, but he still, by a great effort, retained his own presence of mind. "'We are not afraid of you,' he asserted, looking straight into the other's narrow, shifting eyes. I am nearly as big as you, and I could roll you over and over in the mud of this wet field, only that would give you the legal hold on me that is just what you wish. You can't do us any real harm, no matter what you pretend. I don't believe you have anything behind those threats you make to Cousin Jasper. I don't think you believe in your claims yourself. You're a bluff, like this scarecrow here. You're nothing but a boogeyman, stuffed with straw. He caught the scarecrow by the shoulder venting his rage upon the helpless bundle of rags, shaking it even out of its ridiculous resemblance to its master, until it fell to bits about his feet. He flung down the miniature upon the heap of rags, and followed by Janet, walked away across the field. Anthony Crawford stood looking after him, never offering a word. When Oliver reached the path, he became aware that John Massey was leaning over the gate, grinning in half-terrified delight. 
The rain was beginning to fall steadily again as they came out into the lane and climbed into the car. It rained all of the afternoon, but ceased at nightfall, just in time, so Janet said, to keep Mrs. Brown from nervous prostration. Oliver could not quite understand how plump, comfortable Mrs. Brown could be threatened with such a malady, for he had forgotten that next day there was to be a much-heralded outing for all the members of Cousin Jasper's household. The occasion was a celebration at the next village, a glorified edition of the ordinary country fair, in which farmers, summer visitors, and the residents of the bigger estates were all accustomed to take part. A magnificent affair it was to be, with exhibitions, merry-go-rounds, peanut and lemonade stands, motor races, a horse show, something to please the taste of every variety of person. It was Cousin Jasper's custom to give the whole staff of servants a holiday for the festival, although the cook usually waited to serve an early lunch, and Mrs. Brown came home before the others to set out a late supper. No influence on earth could ever persuade Cousin Jasper to attend one of these merrymakings, but every other person under his roof was absorbed in looking forward to the great day of the summer. Elaborate preparations had been made, and all that was now in question was the weather, for to make such an event a success it seemed absolutely necessary to have one of those clear, blazing hot days that seem specially to belong to circuses, fairs, and midsummer festivals. Janet was to go under the safe but excited wing of Mrs. Brown, and Oliver also was looking forward to the day with some anticipation. I wonder if the bee-man and Polly will be there, he thought, and went off into further speculation as to what the bee-man would look like in the more civilized clothes that such an occasion would demand. I might not even know him, he reflected. When the day came, however, cloudless, hot, just what such a day should be, Oliver suddenly announced that he was not going. I don't like to leave Cousin Jasper all alone when he is so worried, he said to Janet, but could not explain why there should be any cause for misgiving. I didn't care a great deal about going anyway. He refused to listen to her suggestion that she should stay also. Lines of motors were rolling down the road from early morning onward, filled with flannel-coated or befrilled holiday-makers, or laden with farmers and farmers' wives and farmers' children. Janet and Mrs. Brown, the one an excited flutter of white organdy skirts, the other a ponderous rustle of tight brown taffeta, departed at ten o'clock, and by one the great house was empty of all save Oliver and Cousin Jasper. The afternoon seemed very still and very long, as one hour followed another. Oliver strolled out to the gate, and stood looking down the road, but the procession of motors had long since come to an end, so that the highway stretched, white and empty, to the far end of the valley. Yet as he stood, idly staring out in the hot quiet, he thought that he saw a small dilapidated vehicle come round a distant turn, and advance slowly toward him. When it was near enough for him to recognize the old white horse, the driver pulled up suddenly, turned the cart sharply about in the road, and rattled away in the direction from which he had come. 
Could it be that he had seen the boy there in the open gate, and therefore had decided not to come in? Oliver could scarcely believe that this was the reason. An hour later, when he had gone back to the house, he saw a ragged barefoot youth in faded overalls come shuffling up the drive. He delivered to Oliver a letter addressed to Cousin Jasper, and said it was, "'From Mr. Crawford, and he was to be sure to get an answer.' Oliver carried it away to the study, and stood waiting, looking out through the window, while Cousin Jasper should read it and write a reply. The brightness of the holiday weather seemed to be growing dim somehow. The sun was still shining, but with a touch of greenish, unreal light. "'I hope there isn't going to be a storm,' he thought. His reflections were interrupted by a sound in the room behind him. Cousin Jasper was tearing the letter sharply to pieces. "'Anthony has sent what he calls an ultimatum,' he said, trying to smile and not succeeding. "'Tell the boy there is no answer.' The messenger, on being so informed, seemed reluctant to believe it. "'He said I must have one, not to come back without it,' he kept insisting. How Anthony Crawford had found anyone to carry his letter on this day, when Medford Valley seemed quite emptied of inhabitants, seemed rather a mystery. Yet he had not only found one, but had impressed him forcibly with the necessity of fulfilling his errand. It was only after he had received a coin from Oliver's pocket and a large apple from the fruit-dish in the dining-room that the shabby youth finally decided to go away. "'He said I wasn't to come back without an answer,' so if I haven't one I needn't go back at all. He seemed to find this solution of the difficulty an excellent one, and went striding away, whistling cheerfully. Whatever final threat Anthony Crawford's letter had contained, it seemed to be unusually disturbing to Cousin Jasper. Having evidently made up his mind to ignore it, he seemed just as plainly to be able to think of nothing else. He seemed unwilling to be alone, and yet to be very bad company, for he was restless, silent, and when Oliver, with an effort, tried to talk of cheerful things, was completely inattentive. They went into the garden at last, to see how the flowers were faring. The sunshine was more unreal than ever, and sudden, fitful gusts of wind were beginning to stir the trees. They had inspected the flowers, and were halfway across the lawn on their way to the house, when the sun vanished, the wind rose to a roar, and before they could reach the steps, the blinding rain was upon them. It was not an ordinary thunderstorm, but one of those sinister tempests that occasionally break the tension of a hot summer day. Oliver, inside the hastily closed windows, could see the trees lashing helplessly, and could hear them groaning and snapping as one great branch after another came crashing to the ground. It was only a few minutes that the furious wind lasted, as it swept across the garden, but it left destruction in its wake. The beds of lilies were drenched and flattened, the smooth lawn was strewn with twigs and broken boughs, half a dozen trees were split, and one huge Lombardy poplar, with a mass of earth and roots turned upward, lay prone across the driveway. It was half-past six by Oliver's watch, then seven, then eight. No one had come home. 
Cousin Jasper was growing more and more restless and overwrought. Oliver was anxious and hungry. He saw his cousin gather up the fragments of the letter, piece them together for re-reading, then fling them from him once more. The boy wandered about aimlessly in the solitude of the big house, wishing that this long, miserable day would reach an end, and that Janet and Mrs. Brown would come home. It grew dark, and no one returned, although after a long time the telephone began to ring. It was Mrs. Brown's voice, nervous and only half audible, that sounded at the far end. Yes, she and Miss Janet were quite safe. They had been under shelter during the storm, but there had been such damage by the wind that both the railway and the road were blocked. They would not be able to get home for some hours, she feared. "'Could you, Mr. Oliver, just slip down to the kitchen and make poor Mr. Payton a cup of tea and some toast? It is so bad for him to wait so late for his dinner. You will find the tea in the right-hand cupboard and the butter?' The unsatisfactory connection cut her off leaving Oliver standing aghast at her suggestion. Just slip down to the kitchen, indeed, when he did not even know the way to that region of the house. And make tea! It seemed an utterly impossible task. Through the long vista of rooms he could see Cousin Jasper in his study, sitting before his desk, and fancying himself unseen, suddenly bowing his head in his hands. It won't do, thought Oliver determinedly. He must have someone to help him, someone that knows more about this wretched business. There is that cousin Tom he talks about, Eleanor's father. I can't think of anyone else. I will send for him. If he could only have found the bee-man. He even searched the telephone book for the name of Marshall, but found none. And he had never discovered where the bee-man and Polly lived. Yes, the only choice was Cousin Tom. He got the connection with some difficulty, and asked for Mr. Brighton. "'Mr. Brighton is at dinner,' returned the smooth voice of a well-trained servant. "'He cannot be interrupted.' "'But this is very important,' insisted Oliver. "'I am quite sure that if he knew—' "'My orders are that he is not to be disturbed,' was the politely firm answer, while the boy raged and fumed impotently. "'Then tell him,' Oliver directed, "'that his cousin, Mr. Jasper Payton, is in very great trouble "'and needs to see him as, as soon as he finds it quite convenient.' "'His voice was trembling with anger, "'and he slammed down the receiver without waiting for a reply. "'There was no use sending for him after all,' he reflected in black discouragement. "'He was not used to such treatment.' nor did he think that a man should surround himself with so much ceremony that he could not hear a plea for help. He is just what Cousin Eleanor's father would be, was his disgusted verdict. I was a fool to hope for any help there, if it had been the bee-man. Never had the house seemed so enormous or so silent as it was to-night. He went out through a swinging door, attempting to find the kitchen, fumbling down a passage, feeling in likely places for electric buttons, and not discovering them. He bumped his head against unexpected doors and cupboards. He upset something with a horrifying crash in the butler's pantry. At last he found the right door and the proper light switch, and stood in the big shining white kitchen, 
looking about him helplessly at all the complicated apparatus of cookery, clean, polished, and complete, and utterly useless to him. "'This is no place for a boy!' he exclaimed stormily, after he had pinched his fingers in a drawer, spilled the water, and produced a roaring spitting flame in the gas-burner that blew up in his face and then went out. After fifteen minutes of miserable effort, he at last heard the water boil noisily in the kettle, where he had placed water and tea together. He poured out a cupful of the poisonous brew, and stood regarding it in despair. "'I wish Mrs. Brown would come home,' he groaned. "'I'd be glad of any woman, any girl, even Cousin Eleanor.' He had opened a window, for the place was hot and close, and through this he could hear, of a sudden, the sound of an automobile coming up the drive. He dashed through the dark passage, hurried to the great front door, and flung it open. There was a crunching of big wheels on the gravel, and the snorting of an engine checked suddenly to a stop. It was not Mrs. Brown and Janet, for though he heard voices, they were not theirs. The car had stopped beyond the fallen tree, and someone was coming across the grass. Two people, for the voices were a man's and a girl's. Apparently Cousin Tom had not stopped to finish his dinner after all, and he had brought Cousin Eleanor. "'Yes, I'll be glad to see even her,' he thought desperately. The two came nearer, a man in white flannels, but bareheaded in the hurry of his coming and a girl in white also. There was something familiar in the swing of those broad shoulders, in the tone of that voice. Yet Oliver stood, blinking stupidly, holding to the side of the door, too dazed to speak, when the two stepped out of the dark and came up the steps, the bee-man and Polly. End of chapter 10